Hi everybody and welcome to For Fact's Sake, the Ferret's podcast about misinformation and fact-checking. I am your host, Ali Bryan, and joining me as always is the Bishop of Broadcasting, Paul Dobson. How are you doing, Paul? I'm very well, Ali. I think the two weeks you're spending getting these nicknames right is perhaps not the best use of Ferret resources, but otherwise I am good. Well, we'll let the listeners be the judge of that. Um, and even though it's taken me about 1.8 weeks to put together these two-word puns, um, we still have a jam-packed podcast full of great content, don't we, Paul? We do indeed. We are looking at a fact check on crowd numbers at the King's Coronation in Edinburgh, and we are also taking on a attack on the foundation of this podcast from the Spectator columnist Fraser Nelson. And you've been flying solo this week with our interview, Ali. So who have you been speaking to? I spoke to Sophie Maddox, who is a researcher and digital rights advocate from the University of Pennsylvania. And we talked about deepfake porn. Um, basically, what is it and what impact is it having on women online? Okay, shall we get into it? Let's do it. My name's Sophie Maddox. Um, I'm a research fellow and doctoral candidate at the University of Pennsylvania uh, in communication. And my specific research area is on cybersexual violence and its impact on adolescent girls. Okay, so we're here to talk about um, deepfakes today and specifically how much they've proliferated in porn and the porn industry. I wondered if you could first just explain to our, our listeners what deepfakes are and what sort of applications the technology does have. Sure. So um, deepfakes are produced using AI technology um, that essentially enables somebody to strip photos of a clothed person. Um, so the technology, which you can access through an app or a website, uses uh, deep learning algorithms. And these algorithms are trained um, on images of, of, of new people. And then that enables them to kind of synthetically remove clothing from images and replace that the parts of the body that were previously covered with um, naked imagery that's generated by AI. Um, and so these algorithms can also be used to, to strip men, but typically they're trained on images of women and they are used to create fake images of women. Um, and really deep fakes as a, as a concept or as a phenomenon went viral in 2017 when the technology was released on Reddit by a user um, and then um, Another kind of development that's happened really recently is the rise of AI porn, and that kind of adds another level of complexity to, to deepfakes. Um, but essentially, this is where you create completely fabricated sexual images. Um, but even those images are built on big uh, kind of banks of, of images of, of other people that are used non-consensually. Right. So when people became aware of them in the public, I remember most of the chat seemed to be politically misinformation based. That seemed to be where people seem to have major concerns. So they're, oh, will they make a politician say X when they actually didn't say it? But then a lot of the uh, research since then has discovered that it seems to be mostly being used for porn. Yes. So why do you think that is? And why do you think that wasn't really assessed in the initial publicity around deepfakes? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And that's actually what kind of piqued my interest in this area, because there are every year there are new kind of forms of cyber sexual harm that are affecting yeah. um, different groups. And my kind of immediate interest in deepfakes was 
this difference between the rhetoric and the concern, lots of think tanks and governments and media organizations getting really concerned about what happens if there is a fake speech of the prime minister or the president circulating, like that's going to destroy our democracy. No one's going to be able to believe what they see anymore. um, And we're all going to lose trust in um, digital communication media. And then that just didn't happen. Um, and so we can see from the um, statistics from um, Deep Trace Labs did a really interesting study. And they found that not just the majority, but uh, 96% of deep fakes in the first two years were pornographic. So we're talking about all of this stress, about 4% of, of deep fakes. So I think there is a kind of big, broad reasons for this. So one kind of broad reason is that um, sex is taboo. People don't really want to talk about sex or porn um, in a political kind of environment. Um, And I think, you know, a big thing that drives that as well um, is that this is also an issue that predominantly affects women. And we know across different um, kind of aspects of life that when issues predominantly affect women they are typically not given as much um concern as when they affect men so we see this in literally everything from conviction rates around rape to medical discrimination to pay disparities so when you have a combination of like something people don't want to talk about because it's to do with sex mm-hmm. and it's something that affects a group that is traditionally more minoritized like women those are kind of two big picture reasons why i think the reality of deepfakes weren't addressed. I think there is also a more specific process that was happening. And this is very much kind of more my hunch than anything else. Um, but I think deepfakes that were political, for example, like speeches of made by politicians, they were seen to undermine trust in a very straightforward way. So everyone was going, you know, everyone's going to be deceived by this content and they're not going to be able to know what actually happened. Mm. But I think deepfake porn doesn't really threaten truth and trust in the same way because it reinforces an existing hierarchy it 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 kind of re-legitimizes women as sex objects and people who are less believable than men um and it doesn't necessarily affect um it doesn't kind of upturn uh existing social hierarchies or existing social norms um and also, I just don't think these things affected people who were making policy decisions directly. How difficult is it to produce this sort of material? And like, how accessible is the technology now? Yeah, so I would say that there really aren't many barriers to entry. Um, you know, as long as you have access to the internet and you can, you can pay people to make these images for you, you can use mm-hmm. the apps yourselves. Um, there is new technology around AI porn, like stable diffusion, um, where you can do text to image. So you can write text about what pornographic image you want to produce and then yeah. that can be produced for you. So I think, you know, this is certainly something that is free to use and extremely accessible. Um, even some of these tools can be used offline as well, obviously. Um, so yeah, I would say that isn't, I'm not a, technology expert from the computer Mm. science side of things but from the user end of things i can't see a kind of clear um major barrier to entry for producing these images Mm. and that means that people don't necessarily need to go and pay loads of money even to go to a specialist they can the technology is there to be so you can do it yourself um i think it's always really interesting when um chat gpt and when mid uh, mid journey and dowie came out they very specifically were like 
we don't use you know don't, we, we've put into the um, algorithms that created this like so you can't use it to make porn because that was basically what they assumed is what that's what people would start to use it for yeah i think that's really kind of telling um and also kind of demonstration of the work that so many women and and victims have done there has been so much of a push among survivors of different forms of cyber sexual violence to force this issue on the agenda of you know these new technologies can be used for really serious sexual abuses can be used for really serious um harms and so i think perhaps there is this kind of like well we're just going to shut everything down we're going to make sure like no erotic expression can happen whatsoever mm. um and therefore that's going to kind of um stop us from from having to deal with this i think there are lots of issues with that um i think one issue is that like when you do that you know you also take away people's access to kind of erotic expression of themselves and i think there is you know these technologies aren't inherently bad for women or, or bad for minoritized groups it's it's when they exist in spaces where they can kind of be made so toxic so quickly um that is that is really concerning so there is always this kind of like you don't want to shut down expression and you want to give people their erotic sovereignty to kind of be able to express themselves and explore their sexuality, especially for, for women who haven't necessarily been able to do that so freely in the past. I'm interested how this is linked to and how it's kind of become a new expression of what is called by the media revenge porn, maybe more accurately called image-based abuse. I'm interested in the connections between that technology and that phenomenon. One of the challenges of talking about these issues actually goes back to what we were talking about before about like, how do you create like free self safe expression of people's sexuality and how do you stop abuse? And I think it's similar when we look at the language that we use. So we use language like deep fakes, um, but that can encapsulate a lot of benevolent things like yeah. creating a, a fake image that isn't harmful, but it can also include um, image-based sexual abuse. Um, and so it can also include non-consensually producing fake images of people and then using that to ruin their lives. And so then it's really difficult when you use a term like deepfake because that can kind of communicate so many different things. And also that term was the term used by the person who kind of created this big um th this development in 2017 with, on reddit so also like do yeah. we want to name things after the people who intended to harm right, so i yeah. think one one terminology that i've heard scholars like marianne franks use um in the us is digital sexual forgery which again it's not catchy it's not short but it gets to the to the specific you know and you could even say non-consensual sexual forgery or it gets to the mm -hmm. specific thing that we're talking about like which is the non-consensual creation or distribution of somebody's private sexual image. Right, um, yeah. And so deep fakes that do that um, are absolutely an example of revenge porn um, or what we now call image-based sexual abuse. So we don't call this term revenge porn because that terminology itself is really problematic and often a bit misleading mm. um, because this harm is is done with so many more intentions other than revenge um and also using the term revenge makes it sound like the victim did something wrong in the first place so right, we, yeah. we kind of try and avoid that terminology but you know that that i image-based abuse or image-based sexual abuse is a good way of framing it but yeah absolutely when you non-consensually produce a deep fake sexual image of someone you are perpetrating a really serious um you know really serious harm potentially um especially if that's distributed publicly um and so we we see that you know um you know at its most severe um in the way that these images are used for power and control 
So lots of people um, leaving abusive relationships um, will report that um, the threat of having nude images of them created and exposed was one of the ways that their abuser controlled them. Or we see that with child sexual abuse, right? Like you produce child sexual abuse images and then you use them to stop the child from telling a parent or you know we see this even in in so many different aspects that aren't to do with individual relationships so if you are someone who has a misogynistic view towards uh, women politicians and you don't think women should be kind of speaking publicly in politics then yeah. you can produce fake images of them in an attempt to shame and silence and punish and control them um so non-consensually producing deep fakes um, is absolutely a form of image-based sexual abuse and what often um, combines or what, what is often an indicator that it's happening is when there is that desire for power and control that we see in intimate partner violence. However, there is always this added layer that some people do this because they just think it's funny or they just think that like images of, of women, you know, women's sexuality and women's bodies, it's their public property and it's mm -hmm. their right to dis disseminate them. So often those kind of power and control drivers are a little bit lower under the surface and the surface level driver is, oh, this could be silly, this could be funny, like I'm going to cause a bit of drama. Um, but in reality, this can have really, really damaging impacts on victims. With deep fakes and with images that are created uh, with AI or just, you know, photoshopped or basically not like non-real images that people who consume or use this sort of porn, they feel like they can separate themselves from the harm of it because it's not real. Is that something you've got a sense of? Yeah, I think there's this really interesting idea of like things you would do online that you would never do in person or like yeah. that the kind of online spaces aren't real. So a classic example of this is like sending an unsolicited dick pic. Like if someone yeah. got their genitalia out in public, like that would have a really serious immediate legal ramification that could often lead to like them being put on a, a, a sex offender register or something like that. Yeah. Like the, the non-consensual sharing of, of, of dick pics unsolicited has become like, you know, completely endemic um, online with almost no ramifications. So I think this idea that things that happen online don't have the same severity or don't really matter as much or don't have such serious impacts is really prevalent and it's actually the reverse in a lot of ways so with um non-consensual deep fakes we find and generally image-based sexual abuse we find like extremely severe offline harms um so victims often report similar harm similar um outcomes to victims of sexual abuse so like extreme ptsd chronic mm. depression suicidal ideation you know thinking about what happens when an image that's designed to humiliate and shame you can never be deleted it's always online you can never disprove it you can change your name you can do all of these other things but often um this is exacerbated by kind of dedicated online communities that want to continue virtually yeah. um uh harassing women so those women can change their name they can move to a different place but they can still be have their information again kind of exposed online and this becomes a constant daily battle to kind of take back your digital identity so yeah this idea that these are virtual harms and not physical harms massively impacts perpetration and also victimization could could you give uh, some example of how the kind of like activism and the um like support for victims and stuff has sort of developed and what, how, are we in a better place than we were when the deepfake technology first came out? I think if you take the history a little bit longer, say to like the kind of 
early days of image-based sexual abuse or revenge porn. So when kind of revenge porn web- websites that specialized in revenge porn started right, popping yeah. up, like 2008, 2009, like looking back at that time period, there has been an immense kind of really powerful and effective movement. Um, when you started talking about these issues with tech companies, with think tanks that promoted free speech, especially in the US, which is where I've spent most of my time during this period, there was this idea that you absolutely could not regulate the internet in any way and that free speech um, protected any form of um, kind of sexual abuse or sexual violence that was perpetrated online. And this was such a strongly held position. And that position just doesn't have any grounding anymore. Like there has been such an effective push by survivors and activists and scholars um that that has really flipped in a lot of ways maybe not flipped but massively shifted in a lot of ways and now you have major social networking companies now you have um kind of think tanks and, and organizations dedicated to free speech openly acknowledging that like actually it's really bad for free speech when you make an online space right, yeah. feel so horrible for women to exist in which seems so obvious to to um survivors and activists but um so i think there has been a complete kind of shift in thinking around regulation um and i think that's a testament to what could even be done in the next 20 years if we kind of continue and i think why it's been so successful is because it hasn't focused on um you know it's focused on the idea that actually free speech and the kind of environment that we want to exist in online um is actually going to be more likely if we have regulation that kind of addresses abuse and harassment like that's actually going to bring us closer to more realistic free speech okay so if we can cast our minds back just a couple of weeks to the coronation there were a number of claims flying around on twitter about the size of crowds uh, in scotland for uh, viewing events for the coronation Uh, so what were people saying about these events ali yeah so as you say there were like loads of viewing events and various events around the coronation people um having garden parties or you know um watching in their homes and but then there was also a number of like public viewing events which took place um there was uh, certainly one in glasgow one in aberdeen and one in edinburgh um which is the one which is uh, forms part of the claim that we're talking about um and one of the things that was happening on social media when people were watching it obviously there are there are some quite um strong opposing views uh on um yeah. whether or not the event was uh, worthwhile or whether it was you know, worth the money and also about the popularity of the monarchy and in scotland there was this there was a sort of extra layer of it which was kind of people trying to compare how popular the monarchy was in scotland versus england and yeah. making claims uh based on you know he's us, using these pictures and using like footage from these events to make claims about how popular it was and so the claim that we looked at was actually an image um and it was a picture of a event which took place in Prince Street Gardens in Edinburgh at the bandstand um, and it was a sort of sparsely attended um, viewing um, supposedly showing the viewing of the coronations but with basically nobody there um, with the claim saying well I think we can safely say that yesterday's coronation highlighted some of the cultural differences between Scotland and England. Yeah so I think this is being used to reinforce a narrative or about Scotland about its sort of 
potential Republican tendencies so as well mm. worth fact checking. So what were the pictures from Edinburgh being compared to? So a number of things. I mean, there was, there was, there was just claims showing the difference between Scotland, you know, showing the this viewing in Edinburgh versus the crowds at the coronation in London. There was also comparisons being made to an event which happened in Edinburgh, which was a Republican event, an anti-monarchy event that took place near the Scottish Parliament. And also a Scottish independence march which happened in Glasgow. So they were kind of comparing, contrasting an image, you know, of loads of Scotland flags and loads of people at one event to supposedly nobody at the other event to make the point that people in Scotland were as they, they would claim less interested in the monarchy as than they might be in England. We've talked quite a lot about um, images on the podcast recently. Yeah. Specifically looking at AI generated images and sort of misleading images as well. Mm. So was this picture real? Yeah, it was real. And I think it's, it's an interesting point talking about AI and uh, computer generated images in general is that that's very much where like the kind of publicity around um, misinformation is in image terms is about yeah. images being made how the dangers of AI of making images that, are, that mislead but often the vast majority of images that mislead at the moment and have done previously are just images that are either taken out of context or just, you know kind of quite basic Photoshop jobs um, yeah. this particular image was real and it was taken of the event um, but it gives a really misleading picture of how popular it was um, it's not for us to say, you know, how popular it was compared to other things and what popular, how popular uh, each respecting view is. But basically what happened was somebody took a picture that was then uh, put on to a newspaper live blog at 10 in the morning on the day of the coronation, the coronation, uh, which showed the amount of people who were there at 10 in the morning, basically. Um, but the event didn't really kick off for an hour late until about an hour later. Um, obviously the coronation event like went on and on all day. I mean, it started at 6 a.m. <laughs> um, I feel your enthusiasm there. That's not, that's not a value judgment at all, but it certainly did go on for a long time. And they uh, actually only opened the public events um, just before then. So it's basically showing people the first people who were there. Um, and there was loads and loads and loads of other pictures and videos and stuff. Taking you know, all the local papers seemed to be there. Uh, the Edinburgh News were doing live blogs and doing... Uh, videos from the event which showed that it filled up significantly so basically it's just a really mis it, while, while it is a real picture it doesn't really show the situation as it was throughout the event it just shows it right at the start So Ali, you've been left reeling this week after an attack on the basis of your profession and this podcast by the spectator journalist Fraser Nelson. So what did he say about fact-checking as a profession? Yeah, so Fraser Nelson uh, wrote a opinion piece in The Telegraph, uh, which, as you say, took aim at uh, fact-checkers, self-appointed fact-checkers, he calls them, um, and he described fact-checking in the article as, quote, political correction. Um, and his sort of main thrust of his point was that fact-checkers often operate to sort of endorse uh, the prevailing narrative rather than challenge it. And cites a few examples of people um, who made claims about things uh, 
that were he saw as being kind of uncomfortable subjects. So he he um, cites examples as like making having frank discussions about climate change or jihadi finance or immigration or trans issues. Um, and he says if you do um, have a quote frank discussion about that, then you can expect a kind of swoop of uh, self appointed fact checkers to come down and sort of judge you for it. Um, he then claims that this sort of fact checking idea has become a sort of new form of bias which stops people from being able to challenge these narratives so yeah so it sounds like he accused fact checkers of bias and of confirming sort of official narratives which i think is criticism that uh, the profession has had before Mm. so what would you say about his accusation is it something you agree with or no i don't agree with him and i don't agree with the point he's making i think that Fact checkers in general are a kind of massively broad church. There's so many of fact checking organizations now. There's like he mentions uh, Full Facts and BBC's Reality Check, for example. There's also there's obviously there's us. There's um, Channel Four Fact Check. There's Logically. There's Politifact. There's all sorts all over the place who do an incredible amount of fact checking in terms of like the amount of claims that get checked now compared to ten years ago is you know so many more. And you'll see like fact checks and claims from all different sides of the argument. If you actually look deep, if you actually like look at like, you know, our work or full facts archive, you'll see all sorts of different people being fact checked, all sorts of different sides and narratives and, you know, um, positions on certain issues which are challenged. So the idea that fact checking only sort of seems to confirm existing narratives, I don't think is really fair. If you look, just look at like our archives and look at the amount of times we fact check the SNP who are in government in Scotland or the Conservatives who are in government in the UK. Um, similarly, full fact who challenge, who fact check things said by every major party, and we fact check things that are said on on you know claims that are made on socials that have that never really make it into the mainstream, um, and fact check things by you know news channels, media, by pundits, by Fraser Nelson, um, by you know various people. So I think there's it's kind of unfair to say that fact checking does has a narrow scope in what it does, um, but I think he's. You know, there's a a point there to say that, generally speaking, it's important that fact checking is scrutinised, and that fact checkers are not seen as like some sort of arbiter of truth. I think that's kind of one of the things that when you come in when we come into this profession, when we were developing um, uh, FFS, we were sort of trying to make sure that we weren't seen that way. And it wasn't just like, well, oh, if, if you want to know something whether something's true or not, you have to come to us because we only want people who know what's true. I mean, fact checking isn't some sort of like specialist like thing that you that no one can do. Part of the whole point of what we do is by is by giving kind of all the sources to what you do and looking at the kind of method opening up the methodology of what we have that you can then scrutinize our work and anything you know. Basically, what fact checking is is just taking the time to look at the evidence behind a claim in a situation of like rolling news that we're in now where it's quite difficult to do that. I think one of the points he made in his piece, which I thought undermined his argument entirely, was the fact that he said that BBC Fact Check hadn't fact-checked something in one of David Attenborough's Wild Isles series pieces. Yeah. At the same time, he's making the point that there's this sort of torrent of fact-checking going on. But to me, what what he said suggested that actually what's required is more resources for fact-checking. Because I think quite a lot of the time, it seems to me that there's a level of selectiveness more because there's only so much time in the day rather than because there's an inherent bias on the part of fact checkers. Does that make sense? Or 
Yeah, no, I think that's a, that's a uh, a good point, and I think that um, that one of the things that like fact checking has grappled with as a sort of profession, and also we've been criticised for just generally as a profession. Also, we have personally, um, is for selection, like selection biases, or you know, do you fact check things on one side more than another? Do you you know do you fact check certain narratives more than other narratives? And you're right, basically, we have to be selective in what we fact check. Um, because you can't fact check everything that comes out. It's just not possible. No organization, all the organizations that exist combined don't fact check every claim that gets made. Um, but it's about that selection process. We tend to use uh, to try and make sure that our fact checking in terms of when fact sides, there's a fair bit of balance between the sides we fact check. So we're not just always fact checking the Tories or always fact checking the SNP. Um, but also bearing in mind how much of uh, impact said claim has had. Yeah. So if, you know, quite often people will come to us and say, oh, I saw this thing uh, that my mate shared or something, you know, um, and it's, I, I want you to fact check it. And sometimes, and often we'll take it on, but often the reason we won't will be because we'll have a look at it and take a look at our various monitoring tools and it won't have had a massive reach. So basically it means it's not having a huge impact on the debate or it's not massively misleading a lot of people. Whereas there's other claims which might seem... A lot, you know, might to someone seem like they're not important, but then they've had a huge reach, yeah. and they've had a, a huge number of people have been have been talking about them and have been misled by them. So yeah, it is really difficult, and I think I don't know. It's it's always good to for fact checkers to get a bit of criticism and a bit of uh, scrutiny because you know, like any, it shouldn't it shouldn't be left unscrutinized like any um, profession, any part of journalism or writing. That's all we've got time for for this week's podcast. Thanks so much to Sophie Maddox for her uh, expertise. And Paul, for fact's sake, isn't the only podcast that the ferret's got at the moment, is it? No, that's right, Ali. We've had our Cheku Bayou, the Inquiry podcast coming out over the last couple of weeks, which is looking at that inquiry, which is obviously quite a pivotal moment for modern Scotland. Um, and you can check that out at our website or uh, just like with the For Fact's Sake podcast, wherever you get your podcasts uh, it's well worth a listen excellent and if you want to get in touch with for fact's sake fact check at the ferret.scot is the email to go with all of your comments and you can get us on the socials as they're called i believe there is our twitter at ferret scott you can search for the ferret on facebook and instagram and we will now be putting the fuller versions of the interviews for these podcasts on youtube see you next time bye bye